0: Hello and welcome to the Move Against Cancer podcast. My name is Lucy Gossage. I'm an oncologist, co-founder of 5K Your Way Move Against Cancer and an absolute lover of outdoor adventures. And this is a podcast brought to you by Move Charity. Now this week, I'm chatting with Mr. Henry Marsh. Henry um, is a retired neurosurgeon and he's also the author of three best-selling books. I vividly remember reading his first book, Do No Harm, during the first year of my triathlon sabbatical. And in this book, he describes with brutal honesty, yet also with compassion and candor, the highs and lows and the privilege that come from being a neurosurgeon. He describes the joys of operating, the profoundly moving triumphs, the harrowing disasters, the haught- haunting regrets, and the need for hope when you're faced with life's most difficult decisions. He talks about his successes, but also his failures. He talks about how he feels when patients die, how he feels when he has to break bad news, how he feels when he saves a life. Reading "Don't no, Do No Harm" for me at the time that I read it was such a pertinent reminder that whatever happened with triathlon, I would always, at the end, want to be an oncologist. And I honestly think it's a book that has shaped my life. In 2020, just before the pandemic. Henry was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. And in his most recent book, And Finally, he shares his experience of transitioning from doctor to patient. But it's more than that. Waterstones describes it as a masterful meditation on mortality and the importance of a life well lived. And I think that's a good description that I would be inclined to agree with. It's incredibly rare that one gets the opportunity to speak with someone whose writing has shaped their own life. And I can't quite believe they've got this opportunity. Um, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I'm sure that I will do. Hello. <laughs> can I call you Henry? Yeah, i yeah, you can yeah, Mr. Mr. That's fine. Yeah. It's that NHS hi- hierarchy, isn't it, that that we still call people by... Um, I always tell my patients to call me Lucy. Um, yes. Yes. But no. the colleague I work is very much work with is very much Dr. Hennig. Um, anyway, thank you so much for yeah for taking the time to chat with me. It it really is a massive honor. Um, I read your first book when I was not working as an oncologist and was trying to be an athlete. And um, yeah, it was a really timely reminder that despite everything I was doing sports wise, I wanted to keep triathlon in my life. So, firstly, thank you on a personal level. Um, so, I've read all your books. They're all brilliant. They're very thought provoking. Um, but I think what I love most is your brutal honesty. And you many, call many, many people,
1: many people <laughs> have said that, yes.
0: <laughs> well, you definitely call a spade a spade and, and you say it how it is. Um, do you find writing cathartic?
1: Yes. I mean, I write, I've written all my life, but it was just basically a daily diary from the age of 12. I never really planned on publishing or becoming a writer, in inverted commas. But my second wife, Kate Fox, who we've been together now 23 years, um, who's a very brilliant writer. She's an anthropologist, writer, hilarious, very clever book called Watching the English, about English behaviour. She had asked me, what were you doing at work? And I'd read a bits of my diary, And she said, oh, well, you know, go and see my literary agent. That ought to be a book. So that really is how the, The books came into existence, but I write mainly, I suppose, well, I come from a very sort of bookish literary family, in effect, but I'm a terribly emotional person. Uh, And I think really my writing and my diary writing is a way of trying to sort of handle my feelings in a way and channel them, Um, and there's some anxiety about life slipping away, trying to sort of make a mark in the sand somehow. Something like that. And also, I just like words. You know, I like you can say, you can express the thought so many different ways. And English is a wonderfully complex language with so many different words. Now, if you translate books in English into foreign languages, it's always said that the foreign language translation is much longer. (laughs) (laughs) Because we have have such a big dictionary with so many different words of different shades of meaning.
0: So your um your your first books kind of became bestsellers. Uh, yeah. I don't know whether you yeah. anticipated that that or not, but your your most recent book is a very personal uh... Yes, it's
1: even more personal than the other ones. Yes. And it's about well, it started off as a book about the brain and me looking at my own brain scan and being deeply shocked by it because it showed such so many age related changes, which I rather and smugly thought, I was terribly clever still, and my brain must look jolly good. I mean, a small number of people in old age—I'm now almost 73—have um, their brains don't change that much, but most most of them do. And probably, actually, my my brain scan is not that atypical, but it's still rather horrible. <laughs> Having looked at people's brain scans as a doctor for 40 years, to then look at mine was deliberate, wasn't I? Mean, I I wanted to provoke myself, but I didn't like what I saw. And then the pandemic came, and, and then I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I'm rather stupidly proud of the fact with a PSA of 130, which is only about 5% of men have a PSA that high. And it puts me in a high risk for recurrence, although I don't have any metastatic or lymph node involvement, so maybe I'll live a bit longer. My oh, well, there's always chemotherapy, etc., etc., But the book is about how shocked I was. And I shouldn't have been shocked because I'd been sitting on, literally sitting on my symptoms for years in a state of total pretense and denial, partly because I think doctors tend to do this. Mm. Uh, illness happens to patients, not to us. Um, and also, you know, that's very frightening. Um, and I had to come to terms with that. And now I've been on, hormone therapy for two years, which is basically castration treatment, um, which ends now, at the end of this year. And then we, as my oncologist hopefully helpfully said, we wait and see. So <laughs> we wait and see if the PSA starts going up again, which it may probably will, I suppose, sooner mm-hmm. or later. So I've had to learn to accept sort of uncertainty about my future. But then at the age of 73, the future's, in a sense, uncertain anyway, you know. Um, so it's all, uh, that's what the book's about, among many other things. Um, so, and there's all various rifts on cancer and genetics and aging research and things like that, which some people like. And the recent reviewer in it didn't like at all. But, you know, you can't have every, not every review can be good. So most of the reviews were pretty, pretty favorable.
0: Do you, do, see, I mean you have this this dichotomy and 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 I can empathize with it in, in some ways that you've you know you you think your brain is you tell yourself your brain's going to look amazing because yeah, you're, you are yeah, Henry yeah. Mars a neurosurgeon, but then you you make yourself look at it yes. and you have the symptoms that probably you know you're a neurosurgeon, you're a very rational person deep mm. down. Um, and I, I, you know, you talk about in the book, you're cycling and you get the PSA result and you tell yourself it's just cause you were cycling, that's but you right, know, yes. that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, that's
1: ludicrous. I'm completely ridiculous, <laughs> but I found a consolation in it. You know, I'm a normal human being.
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I find it fascinating. So I did some work as an athlete with a psychologist and one yeah. of the things I'm, I like to think I'm very rational. But actually, I had completely irrational thoughts each time I stepped on a start line. Yeah. Had, oh, yeah.
1: No, no, we, you know, the idea of this division of reason from emotion is a totally false distinction. You know, we we are all deeply emotional. Our emotions guide us in principle between rational choices. But, you know, we know from people with, with frontal lobe brain damage or or other people with without amygdala, this rare condition, or is it uve something or other disease where you get calcification and the amygdala go and the amygdala are partly at least all about fear and anxiety and danger and and people it's mainly um the neuro, neuroscientist has researched research one or two of his people and they're hopeless at making decisions they yeah. can see all the rational options and choices but can't assess risk and they they make terrible mistakes because they don't they're not emotional enough about it their frontal lobes are disconnected from the amygdala well, This is interesting
0: so do you do you find when you you know i'm rational i know sometimes when i'm a bit being irrational i say lucy that's irrational stop thinking like that do you as a neuroscientist or a neurosurgeon with extensive neuroscience do you say that's this part of the brain and these neurochemicals making these irrational? no
1: not really i mean i think i mean um i don't think neuroscience tells tells us anything about human values or, or choices. I mean, it's just descriptive. It says, we. I, I accept that everything I'm thinking and saying now is is produced in some way by the electro, electrochemical activity of my brain. My brain has to obey the laws of physics. And you can say, well, this bit of the brain is associated with that sort of thought or that sort of perception. But it doesn't actually explain anything, you know?
0: So mm. it doesn't...
1: It doesn't, in itself, having a knowledge of neuroscience, doesn't help you cope with your emotions at all. I mean, the only way you learn to cope with your emotions is is through experience and thinking and talking. And I, I've had, psyche, I've had psychotherapy of a sort, counselling twice in my life, and I, I find it very helpful. I think we're all better off uh, counselling and meet somebody. And, and and psychotherapy isn't about telling us what to think or do. It's about helping us actually. Analyse ourselves, you know, and Mm. and admit, because all of us have all these contradictory, contradictory feelings. It's cognitive dissonance. It's part of being a human being. Um, And you have to recognize a lot lot of the time one's emotions drive one in the wrong direction from what you really want in the longer term. And to be able to sit back a bit and look at yourself a bit from the outside helps just like we do as doctors when Mm. you meet a patient. You have to listen to yourself talking. You have to think about what this person, what sort of information this person wants, what they can cope with, and how they're going to handle it. And each patient is different and is often very difficult because you meet people for the first time. But it's all about getting outside yourself. And I find certainly what does help a bit when I'm feeling, as I still often do, when I was thinking, oh, God, I've got cancer, it's going to come back, I'm going to end up paralyzed with spinal mets and all that. I then think, well, come on, Marsh, you know, if, if you were looking at somebody else going through what you're going through now, what would you think? And I'd think, well, they're pathetic. They're lucky, you know. They've had a very good life. They've made it to 72. Mm-hmm. There's terrible things happening all over the world. My friends in Ukraine are being bombed and killed and everything else. You really are you're pathetic if you start getting too worked up about this. And that I find helpful. That, that calms me down to think what I would think of myself, so to speak. If I was somebody was observing somebody else, and again, it's all double standards. We think we're we're sort of. <laughs> does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it does. I find that really interesting, actually, because I'm I'm completely opposite. I I find if I'm struggling with something, telling myself to pull my socks up, and it could be worse, actually, doesn't help me. But I guess that goes back to. Everyone is
1: very well, good. I think it I agree. It certainly is not advice you should ever give to somebody else. I think it's it's very big mistake to tell the patient that it could be so much worse, you know. <laughs> yeah. Lots of other people suffering more than you are. But I but I find I, I find it helpful for myself. But it's gain, it's thinking what I how I would judge somebody else, and then reflecting that judgment back on myself. That's what I find quite helpful. It's not filling up my socks, it's just trying to recognize I've got double standards
0: <laughs> so um in in the book you write um you write very eloquently actually and I imagine some of it was perhaps quite hard to write about some of the i think these are your words dehumanizing parts of becoming a patient um, no, it
1: was very very easy to write because i found it terribly funny really and I tried to t- try to be fairly light-hearted about it I'm having having sort of gold pellets stuck into my prostate, you know. <laughs> it was I, I, that, that, that didn't bother me. And I knew, I mean, I didn't learn any new lessons. I wasn't somebody who said I really didn't know what it was like to be a patient until I was ill myself. What was a surprise for me was just how upset I was by the thought of having cancer, how frightened I was. In terms of the whole business of being a patient, well, it's tedious, you know. And I knew I'd always I've always hated hospitals, um, and always felt they were sort of dehumanizing institutions or tend to be. And I had the great joy of working in a standalone neurological, neurosurgical hospital called Atkinson Norley's and Wimbledon for 20 years, which was up, uh, you know, heavenly relatively. It was small, you knew all the staff, there's none of that sort of shrinking, crushed feelings, you go through the doors of these enormous machine block hospitals of a sort I ended up in eventually. Um, so that wasn't new. I, I wasn't disappointed that I got no kind of special treatment. I'd, there was certainly no red carpet rolled out for me, even though the hospital I was treated, I'd done all the cancer neurosurgery there, and patients were sent to me at my own hospital. I was slightly surprised, but I, if I'd had myself as a patient, I'd have been bloody terrified. You know, this man I was right
0: going to up. ask <laughs> how, because there are some patients that I, you know, I, <clears throat> I get terrified. But I, you yeah. know, if I've got to break bad news, or if they're uh-huh. a professor or some high No, exactly. You know, no,
1: we hate treating. We hate treating colleagues. I, as you climb up the greasy pole, you end up starting to treat your own colleagues um, or other doctors, and it's actually I find quite I found quite difficult. Oddly, because, you know, they don't have the irrational trust in you, which Mm -hmm. non-medical patients, in a sense, have to have. And all your professional barriers of self-defense are somehow being destroyed because you're now treating a member of your own tribe. And we are tribe. We shouldn't be, but we're human beings. So we tend to divide patients into us and them. And when you treat fellow doctors, it feels a bit bit close to the bone it kind of interferes with our professional detachment because the great challenge about being a doctor is finding a balance between being kind and compassionate and being detached and it's really difficult and it depends on all sorts of factors um, as the years go by and that's really tough
0: but that's That's the challenge
1: and that's what makes it ultimately so if you can most of the time find that balance that's what makes for me, like most doctors, being a doctor an incredible privilege and a fantastic job. Not what everybody wants to be a doctor, of course.
0: I yeah, I I, mean, I, I find I find it hard to articulate when people say. So I do a lot of work with teenage, young adult patients. Yeah, uh, and I find it really hard when people say why Why would you choose to work with young people, some of whom will die? It's 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 really hard to articulate why it is such a a joyous place to be sometimes, despite all the, all the heartbreak. But it's certainly one of the one of the things I struggle with is is getting that balance right between being detached and and looking after myself so that I can keep going to work, but also not ignoring the enormity of every single word. That That's right.
1: Yeah. Fisch- no, I'm right. I'm very good friends with Rachel Clark, the palliative care doctor, and she and I were in Ukraine together two weeks ago. Yeah planning on trying to not so much improve, introduce palliative care in in Ukraine. But she says the same in her wonderful book, Dear Life. She says actually working as a palliative care doctor. It it is, in a sense, very joyous because, of course, in those situations, the the patients and their families, everything is stripped down to what is really important in life. Um, And so it is a very intense experience. But, um, yeah. It's but, it, but as I tell my trainees and colleagues, if things had gone badly and patients had suffered, I say, well, actually, it would be even worse if it didn't hurt, you know. Uh, and the problem in neurosurgery is we see so much damage, and because the brain has more limited powers of recovery of another tissues in the body, it's easy to become a bit complacent. You know, you see so many terrible strokes and terrible head injuries, and you say, well, I can do nothing about it. It, it, it can be a little bit dehumanizing. There's quite a big moral moral challenge. I and mean, when I went into neurosurgery, I thought it was all about risk and excitement. But, you know, risk for the patient's excitement for me. And looking back at my career now, I can see well, there was a there's a there's a risk of a doctor's as well in a funny sort of way. Now that I'm retired, although I do a lot of teaching and lecturing still, um, I feel a much more complete human being. You know, I'm no longer having to divide the human race into uh, us and them, uh, and and it's, I I quite like that feeling. Of more, I'm not a doctor <laughs> any longer.
0: Do you? I I, I I seem to remember in one of your early books, you um, at one point you berated yourself from from getting too upset by a young yes. person that you, yeah. you couldn't save, and then I think in your most recent book, you you say actually with hindsight. Maybe you you would have wished to have been more compassionate. Do you feel like you're, you know, where that's I think like... I should
1: have. I think I should have. It's hard to know. I think I could have spent more time with patients, but then the whole system is geared to hurrying things along. Mm. And again, to be a surgeon, you know, you really have to. Uh, no, I did spend, I mean, I always went in at night to see my patients before the operation and the night after the operation. So in that sense, I did try quite hard. And um, so I, I, I just say that in the book because well, I, I don't know, but uh, inevitably I think there's no substitute for personal experience. And I'd like to think I did pediatric neurosurgery quite well because my son had had a brain tumor when he yeah. was a baby. He survived. And I, I, but you see, you never, one of the great problems about being a doctor is you're never told how you come across your patients, scarcely ever. You know, you don't, after having one of your breaking bad news conversations, they don't ring you up next day and say, you were wonderful, you were crap. Uh So you Uh have to learn sort of by feel, you know. And I think that's very difficult. And I I suspect most doctors have a rather sort of rose-tinted view (laughs) of their ability at communication because, particularly because of becoming well-known as a writer and doing literary fests and Quite a lot of old patients and, uh, and their families have come up and talked to me. Uh, and on the whole, you know, they wouldn't do that if they hadn't liked me. So on the whole, it's, it's an exercise. It's, it's quite nice for me. But they also say I said things which I really don't remember. That, yeah. I of not said that. One of us is misremembering. One doesn't know which. And one doesn't sort of videotape all your conversations with patients. But it is, I was a huge problem that, you know, we don't know how we come across. And therefore, it's only when you actually had to go through it yourself, you get a better insight into what it feels like to be a patient. Um, and I, I knew that already in principle. I'd always tell my juniors, look, you know, you got to understand our patients are frightened of us. You know, we, as th- surgeons, we think we're these sort of lovely philanthropic smart guys. But actually, it's a hugely unequal relationship uh, and there's no getting around that and you need it to some extent and you can't you mustn't get too involved emotionally with your patients but at the same time power corrupts and it's you know we all know doctors who have become a bit corrupted by it and they've lost lost a certain amount of kindness and they find the all the institutional rituals of a hospital rather comforting and easy and it makes treat patients you know yeah Really. I
0: think you're you're so true about getting feedback um, yeah. um so one of the I mean I, I was extremely privileged very early on in this podcast to speak to Gillian Sewell who was the mum of one of my my very young patients who died yeah. um and it was oh it, I mean it was it was such a tough conversation but she's she's extremely funny extremely articulate and also brutally honest um and it was you know I learned I learned so much from it. Perhaps yeah. not least how one phrase can can change the exactly. whole part of a conversation. You know, and, and
1: it is awful how how patients we cling to every word the bloody doctor says. When when often as a doctor you just make some casual remark without rising, it's so so difficult. No, I, I don't know what happens in medical schools nowadays. But if I could, if I could run the medical schools, I would try to get former patients to come and talk to clinical medical students. Mm-hmm. Or even to the Royal Colleges, you know, to to postgraduates to get some patient feedback. Um, yeah,
0: I yeah, I think I think it's safe. I mean, we
1: do lack, like, we do need it, and it shouldn't be the case that it's only when the doctor falls ill himself that he or she actually gets understands a bit more and how. You know, and a lot of it's really about listening to patients and not talking yourself. I mean, the my the rules I kind of discovered over years of practice and in neurosurgery you have an awful lot of bad bad news conversations um was well, the first rule is always sit down and mm-hmm. the second rule is say as little as possible <laughs> don't move you just sit there you know don't be frightened of silence because i think the commonest mistake i made and i and you don't often you probably you don't often hear your call you don't hear other people breaking bad news you know on the whole, is not an audience, there may be a nurse. Um, occasionally I'd hear my bosses and I was a trainee. But um but the important thing is they're sitting there and with bad news. Often it's very simple, the bad news. And and the temptation is to fill it up with lots of irrelevant facts and rather than just sit there sharing it and mm-hmm. not rushing out of the room and leaving the nurse to offer the family or the patient a cup of NHS tea. <laughs>
0: but, but did you get
1: training, to... did you get training in communication as part of your oncological training or was it just watching your consultants
0: <clears throat> no i i mean we did i did a bit so you have to do the the communication skills courses Was that with role
1: actors doing role role, role role playing and actors
0: yeah but mm. when i look back one of the so i was at oxford and i remember oh tim littlewood he was a hematologist when i was a medical student it's funny when you you know look back at how how your careers evolved and yeah
1: he took me to see a lot of random chance i think no
0: absolutely random chance but he took me to see a a, uh probably about 60 with some kind of incurable hematological cancer
1: yeah
0: and he asked me with two other medical students to have a conversation about what it was like to, to know that you had a cancer that wasn't curable with the patient, um, with the patient. Well, and, he watched good. Yeah. and that stuck with, it stuck with me. So, I mean, I haven't thought about that in years, but I yeah, think yeah. that was being, being made to do that and then getting feedback on how I did it and reflect on what it yeah. felt like for yeah. me, what it might have felt like for the patient. Was so invaluable, but it was probably the only time in my training yeah. that I ever See, got my, to do that. But
1: my wife, the anthropologist Kate Fox, has Crohn's disease and has had more contact with a medical professional than she'd like. Um, but she says sometimes her general practice had a video camera for training with her agreement, and that she would film the the trainee GP talking to her and vice versa. And I kept on saying, I ought to do this with my neurosurgical trainees and outpatients, but never did. And I thought, I should have done. Because even with simple things, a lot of back pain, you know, with neurosurgical clinics that are tormented by far too many, largely unnecessary back pain rules. Mm. Talking to somebody with chronic back pain is a tremendous art. <laughs> Much more difficult than talking to somebody with a glioblastoma, quite honestly. Um, uh, and but you get no no real training at all. I have one big regret about my years in practice, was I rarely if ever had either medical students or trainees with me in the clinic, because I didn't want to institutionalise the experience. I just wanted me and the patient and the family. Yeah. And I think as much of my work was was oncological. Um, in retrospect, I think that was a mistake. Because actually, if you just have one other person, as I did occasionally, I should have had more of my trainees sitting in with me. And if there's one other person there, and you explain to the patient and family, it's it's probably worked just as well. But I just didn't like the idea of institutionalizing it. On the other hand, as Kate says, you know, you go into outpatients, and there's a whole queue of medical students uh, (laughs) there. And then you're asked, do you mind if the medical students are here? To which, of course, it's rather difficult to say, yes, I do, fuck off, you know. Mm. And yet you go through the thing of having the medical students hovering outside and then you ask the patient. It, it, it's difficult with, with teaching. But I could have done a better job of it, I think, by having slightly... At least my trainees could see me talking to patients and get some idea at least of how I did things then. Maybe not very well, but, but so there's I not thought, enough um... of that.
0: I've got two very um very blunt specialist nurses that I work with and they're they're brilliant at giving feedback on <laughs> when yes, I, do so things I, I got some well. good
1: feedback occasionally when I was younger from nurses, which was very embarrassing and shaming, but actually it it rankled, but I learned from it. Yeah.
0: But it is it is the hardest. I think it's it, yeah, it's the hardest thing. I mean I, I think really an oncologist's job is is basically communicating the risks and benefits of various options in languages yeah. that patients can understand so that they can make the right yeah. decision. And it's, it's
1: largely all protocol-driven, isn't it? So you're not, it's not quite... Not well, less,
0: less so with so sarcomas and germ-cell tumours. Yeah, okay, all right. They're, they're, yeah. they're less yeah. protocol-driven. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess um, from this podcast, one of the big things that's changed what how I think is is getting that balance between... What's likely to happen for a patient, yeah. and not taking away hope, yeah. um, and it's yeah. it's something that I my thoughts have have shifted since talking to people um, outside the hospital. It's something you've you've written about. Mm. Where where's your kind of line on on that at the moment, as a patient, I guess. And I where would, changed.
1: I think there are ways there are ways of saying. A, there are ways of giving hope without being dishonest and I think a large part of that is is feeling that the doctor cares for you mm-hmm. you know that not as a friend but um yeah okay there's a five percent chance of this or that but if you feel a, if you feel this doctor really is involved and cares for you it's much easier to think about the the good percentage rather than the bad percentage. I I didn't talk in percentages with my glioblastoma patients. What I said was, if you're unusually unlucky, you might be dead in six months' time. And if you're unusually lucky, you might be alive in five years' time. In fact, I just had my tooth pulled two days ago by <laughs> my dentist whose wife I operated upon seven years ago with a glioblastoma, and she's perfectly alive and well. I mean, there are long-term survivors. And I'd say, in between these two extremes, you know, the tumor will come back, and you will need further. We may be able to give you further treatment. Now, I have no idea, because you'd never get feedback whether that was a good way of handling it or not. I wanted to set up a study for the families of dead glioma patients Mm -hmm. to try to find out how they felt about it in retrospect, but it never got off the ground, and I didn't push it hard enough. My impression was, but. The patients who are unrealistically optimistic that we'll fight this and we'll live much longer had a slightly better quality of life for what time they had than the ones who were more depressed. I was always worried about, if I was too blunt about the statistics, which are pretty awful for glide blot I mean, 50% of people are dead within a year. Um, I was worried I'd just plunge people into depression for what time they had left. And I still don't know what the right answer is And you can't find out the right answer without openly talking to patients and their families. It's, you know, I didn't do, and not many people do, I think. It's it's very difficult. You Mm. all know more about this than me. Well, no,
0: I guess guess with oncology, you have, um, so very often there are drugs that might have maybe a a 4% chance of controlling something with significant risk of toxicity. Yeah, yeah. The longer i you know i've only been a consultant for three years so i'm 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 a very young consultant not young yeah. but young and um but actually the longer very often in those situations the the best thing to do is to sway patients away from accepting treatments with very little chance of success yeah. but very significant chance of side effects but those conversations are you you know i'm sure with newer surgery, just because there's a drug, it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Just because oh, you can yeah. do an I operation, mean, the old hard.
1: adage, You takes three months to learn how to do an operation, three years to learn when to do it, and thirty years to learn when not to do it. You know, but it's and, I mean,
0: easier to offer a drug than it is. And so, as well, an it onc- is,
1: and also there's also the problem which oncologists don't have is surgeons like operating. You, know? <laughs> you, don't, you don't get a visceral thrill from from putting up an iv and giving somebody some toxic chemotherapy right it- you know, we we love it and part of the learning when not to do it is is overcoming your deep wish to operate because the operating is the easy part of being a being a surgeon in a sense it's the enjoyable bit which we all love
0: hmm. Yeah, because I I, I I mean it, it's not a question. I, I guess guess it, it's always easier you go into to, to, to go into a consultation and offer something than yes. oh, yeah. To, yeah. to say actually I think the best thing to do is just to stop yes. hospital appointments and go away yeah. and and go, the- yeah. But as I say in
1: one of my books, I think it's very difficult to look somebody in the eye and say go away and die. You know, very difficult indeed. But what you're um, actually
0: saying is go away and live, whereas with the
1: yes yes. Yes, live, live exactly. No, and I, I yes, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, um, I work in Ukraine over the years. Much more time was spent telling people they didn't need an operation than actually operating, you know, because they've been given terrible advice by by some of the local surgeons. Um, so no, and I mean, occasionally, you know, a few people um, were alive and well years later, and that, there was a deep satisfaction sometimes. In some non surgical triumph, you know, you'd see yeah. people, you see nowadays people are having brain scans all the time, and there are lots of coincidental, everhill incidentaloma problem of turning up in coincidental pathology. And then you have to spend a long time, the patients that turn up in the outpatient clinic terrified being told there is an abnormality on your brain scan. And then you have to wait ages to see, to get a definitive opinion. Um, and it would, take, it would take a long time to actually you know, pull people off the ceiling and say, look, you know. And then I'd, after a while, I said, if, if you leave this room at all worried, I've totally failed in what, I, <laughs> what I'm trying to explain. Um, you know, small meningiomas, things like that, which are best left alone. And a lot of them don't, don't grow at all. But again, following people up with regular scans um, is a huge imposition, a great burden of anxiety you impose on people. And you have to sell it very, very carefully. Um, yeah. Or you can ruin their life. I remember very, early when I was doing locum casualty work, as it was called, A&E, many years ago in a hospital in London, and a young man came. In. I was already doing neurosurgery. I was studying for the FL, final FLCS. And a young man came in. Complete meant emotional wreck. And he had been told he had an inoperable basilar aneurysm. Which I do, I think, was unruptured, and he was a haunting Annie, and you know, his life had been ruined just by the way he'd be, probably by the way he'd been spoken of. And this is one of the other problems about communication. Sometimes we have to lie a bit, Uh, uh, and then you know, but he mustn't lie too much. It's Mm. it's it's very difficult. But these, these, I think, are the real the real challenges of being of being a doctor. That and getting on with colleagues is the other big challenge.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, one of your one of the, one of my favourite quotes actually was um, from from your books was "Doctors deserve respect because of failure and not yes. because of success." Yeah. And um, I feel me. that
1: I feel that very very strongly. Yeah. Um, what's special about the job is we fail uh, inevitably because all our patients die sooner or later. And if you're a surgeon, sometimes a failure is your fault, and it's it's spectacular. But then I also say, no, we only have triumphs because we have disasters. You know, the Mm. triumphs wouldn't be triumphant if every operation was straightforward and went fine. But the important thing is to recognize that. And really, you have to judge surgeons, particularly, maybe all doctors, by how they cope with failure, trying to maintain a trusting relationship when an operation has gone wrong is really tough. You know, very, I remember one or two of my, one one consultant when I was a trainee, you know, things had gone badly. He just couldn't bring himself to go on the ward ride. He was so, so distressed. Mm-hmm. And the family were there at the bedside saying, where is Mr. Sanson And I say, I'm oh, wondering, you know, he's busy or something. Um, so that's, that's, that's difficult.
0: Well, what would you define as failure?
1: Oh, there are many sorts of failure i mean there's there's the most dramatic one, which is very unusual, of course is a per operative death, and I only had that two or three times in forty years um well, you know, or failure damaging a patient, making the patient worse than before the operation, which is uh, happens occasionally in neurosurgery um failure the ones that bugged me most oddly enough were when I felt failures of communication you know when mm. I spoke badly I was all dimly aware of it at the time so but that that actually hurts me more the the, the sort of surgical failures not in terms of my hands slipping or anything like that but just an operation going badly I'm kind of reconciled to and I think you know I, I hated it and would be terribly upset. But then, you know, as the years went by, there were far more patients I'd helped than I'd harmed. But I can think of a few instances when I was just inept in the way I spoke to patients or families. I mean, why I remember it, whether that means I was terribly sensitive mm. or are lots of other patients were I'd forgotten. Mm. I don't know. But that's still, I still haunted by a few people. Or I, I suppose it's partly Because actually, throughout my career, I was always very frightened that people would feel I didn't care, you know. And that was my awkwardness, finding a balance between detachment and kindness. I knew that, you know, I wasn't totally committed, but I had to preserve myself. And as a trainer, you have a duty to the patient in front of you. You have a duty to your trainees, future patients. And when you're a young consultant, if you don't take on the difficult cases, how will you ever get any better? So you have a duty to your own future patients. So you know that your relationship with the patient in front of you is not quite what the patient thinks it is. You are not totally 100% devoted to them, which the GMC says, no, the patient always comes first. What is patients, plural, always come first. And I don't know why, but I was always terribly anxious that people would feel I didn't care. And i tell my trainees, I want you to be so bloody insecure. I want you to want your patients to love you, you know, but you need them. But it's it's not a totally one-way relationship. I think they thought I was mad. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: uh, well, I think, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, don't, I, I guess, uh, you know, I've... We all I think there's a tendency for humans to focus on the, the things that go wrong um and and actually black out all the all the successes and, oh, like- yeah, and it's
1: bizarre, isn't it? I mean other surgeons I know the same. I remember most of my I remember all my disasters, or an awful lot of them. I completely forget successes. You know, when old patients come up and accost me I don't remember them at all. But the bad mm. results I do. And that's human nature, of course. We learn we learn much more from bad results and mistakes than we do from success. Yeah. So and old, there
0: is that old adage, failure is only failure if it stops you trying again, which I guess yeah, uh, neurosurgery yeah. is, is, is so important. Yes.
1: But then it's the old thing, you know, knowing to accept things you can't change and changing things you can't accept, you know, it's again, as all this, it's a, it's a problem of difficult judgment. Yeah. No, me For me, the, the, The only way you can lessen these problems is by having good colleagues and team working. And that's what I lecture to the Royal College of Surgeons about. And I say, look, the age of the heroic individual surgeon is past for all sorts of reasons. And both your own mental health, working in an increasingly decrepit, stretched NHS, and in a more sort of critical litigious environment, having good colleagues is incredibly important. And it makes your decision making better as well.
0: Yeah, but that's the the
1: rule of human nature is other people are better at seeing my mistakes than I am and vice versa. Mm,
0: I I think that's a a sad thing about the the NHS for junior doctors at the moment. So I trained when you still had the firm and you had that. It's
1: awful. All the older doctors say the firm, the firm, the firm. And I, I, I find it very hard to be a junior doctor now. It's been totally blown up. Mm, alienated, oh, yeah. estranged, atomized, institutionalized, you know, and because they work with crazy rotors, they don't get to know the nursing staff, you know, because that's not there often enough. Yeah, or um, the all the consultants. All, all, the, the, registered consultants, registered all registered the consultants. Well the consultants don't know them, you know. No, it's it's not good. It's not good at all. Um
0: Let's talk about your love-hate relationship with running, completely changing tack, because we are on the Move Against Cancer podcast. um, Yes, I was
1: wondering when that would come in. At the moment, I can't can't run because I was running two weeks ago and something snapped in my left knee. I was really painful, and I'm now walking again. I think probably it was a torn cartilage, I'm not sure. I'd never go near a medical (laughs) colleague about it. So I went for a long walk this morning along the Thames, and... It was okay, so I'm hoping to start running again. I the, the problem with the running is it's become a lot more tiring because of the hormone therapy. You get mm-hmm. a lot of muscle loss and fatigue. I don't do fatigue very well. Um, I, I, I've always run a bit since my 20s. I only started running not sort of athletically like you, but running more when I was about 50. That's now 20, 23 years ago. And I'd run... Most weeks, an average of 25 to 30 miles a week. That's um, a lot of running. Usually two or three miles a day and a longer run at weekends. And that was fine. I, and I enjoyed it then. This is, I say, 10 years ago. And I'd always feel wonderful afterwards. I there's tremendous exhilaration and mental clarity after exercise. And when I'm in Oxford, as I am now, because so I have homes in both London and Oxford, there's lovely countryside to run. London is more boring. But with the onset partly of old age, but I think the hormone therapy has really become an awful effort. I still was running, but I was down to two miles a day, which isn't very much. I mean, there's no evidence that the more you do, but I'd still get, I'd still feel well afterwards and have a cold shower. So the, the main reason for running was a, cause I felt better afterwards. B, I felt sort of in control to a certain extent of my body because the changes of hormone therapy, I've got some fat around my waist, I've lost all my body hair, and I feel a bit weak. So at least I feel well, I'm still running. I'm still kind of in charge of things a bit. And I think the psychological benefit of running is enormous. I, I will exercise. I was talking to a retired GP recently, he's a brother of another doctor I know, who now sort of advises Prostate Cancer UK. And he was saying that you know, they, they now feel that the quality of life who people maintain who maintain exercise while they have cancer makes an enormous difference. Mm. By my age, I'm not concerned very much about how much longer I live. I'm much more concerned about the, the quality of my life. And physical exercise for me is a hugely important part of that. I'm hoping when the hormone therapy stops and hopefully the PSA doesn't the tumor doesn't come racing back Mm -hmm. Um, I'm hoping I'll feel a bit stronger again and be running longer distances again if my knees are up to it
0: do you think you took on board the implications of the hormone treatment on your quality of life before you no
1: not at all (laughs) I I was told nothing about them Uh, I was so upset and tongue tied I didn't ask many questions um I then read up about it all but for the first year I didn't really notice very much. I mean, yes, your testicles stop hurting, as one of my daughters said. Well, you no longer have to worry about being kicked in the balls. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Does that happen with me? Of got a bit,
1: I got a bit sort of plumper, which I hate. I'm not very much. I only put a few pounds on and lost all my body hair. Uh, and the loss of libido when erections really doesn't bother me at all by my age. But the fatigue, um, I think, has slowly crept up on me over the last sort of six to nine months. And the radiotherapy set me back a bit as well. And that I really dislike, I can't can't live with it. But I accept that by midday, I find it very hard to get much more done. And then I wake up a bit in the evening. But that's partly old age, you know, um, Mm. and partly retirement when I'm less, and I don't have a rigid thing. Having said that, I've got about 16 lectures or interviews to give in the next month. So I'm still quite, quite busy.
0: You don't strike me as someone who's who's lounging around with your feet up.
1: No, so, I get bored. I get bored terribly easily. I have to be active all the time. Do, um,
0: do you think, looking back, do you think your oncologist could have, had have, have you know, should have, would you have wanted them to talk through side effects in more detail or actually would that just put them in your head to expect them? Well, or... because I'm
1: a doctor myself, I was going to mug it all up, you know. Um, yeah. And it's all probabilities. That's the thing. You know, you never know weather i mean all osteoporosis and all sorts of other stuff but um no i i think i, I think having doctors as patients is difficult <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> so yeah. I'm, not, I'm not particularly not particularly critical um the, and the specialist nurses are very pleasant but i got the impression they didn't they wouldn't <laughs> You know, there's always nonsense of having to drink two and a half liters of water a day. It's not true. (laughs) It all goes back to a report done by the American government in 1946 saying the average fluid intake for a human being in temperate conditions is two and a half liters a day. But that's including food water. You know, actually, (laughs) because it meant I became incontinent. I followed that advice and was drinking to it. So I I became incontinent as a result. Because of,
0: my- of the radiotherapy, um, no, before the radiotherapy, okay. because
1: I had very severe prostatism. Yeah, so I, I know. So I, not all the advice I got was was terribly accurate.
0: Did anyone? Did anyone ever talk to you about exercise and and cause no, strength training? No, 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 is nothing.
1: Nothing at all. I mean, I, I I take vitamin D, which I assume makes sense because of the osteoporosis, yeah. but that nobody told me that. No, mm. I got three. Mind you, this is all during the pandemic, you know, and everything was a bit muddled up. But I did get the distinct impression. I'd had one, I met one or two of the nurses. I got the impression they were frightened of me. Um, I, I, I wonder
0: time. why. I'd be terrified yeah, of my patients. <laughs>
1: I got three sort of holistic healthcare questionnaires, which are just, you know, one size fits all, and I couldn't be bothered to fill them up. And anyway, I, I no, I mean I really I can't complain. I mean, the hormone therapy is peanuts compared to toxic. Chemotherapy, which I may yet have to go on um
0: and of course, the other thing
1: then is all about assisted dying, which I'm a great proponent of, and I mean mm. I hesitate to say it sometimes, but I mean, given as you were saying, no particularly toxic chemotherapy with a very poor chance of success, the fact we don't have assisted dying in this country, you feel well, what's the alternative you know is miserable death or miserable chemotherapy with a small chance of success. So um, it's one of the reasons I think that um, assisted dying needs to be seriously looked at in this country so one yeah. can make more rational choices at the end of life. Um, and you
0: write very eloquently, probably one of the best arguments, propo- pro- proponents for it in your, yeah, in your latest yeah, book as yeah, a very, yeah. very good essay that would sway no, a lot thank of people. You. Well, hopefully. Um,
1: well, I mean, 80% to ninety of people in this country in opinion polls. Want the law to be changed. It's uh, a sort of powerful clique of palliative care doctors, senior ones, I think, mainly, and MPs who play terrified. But it's all about evidence. You know, there are so many countries now where assisted dying is legal in one of the various ways. And it's all about legal safeguards. And if you have a robust legal system, the chances of abuse are very, very small. I and mean, the law, ridiculously, in the Suicide Act makes no distinction between assisting somebody to kill themselves if it's a considered request in difficult circumstances and positively encouraging it. But I'm the law makes, has no problems with the concept of coercive behaviour in, in family law. So it's all wildly, wildly inconsistent. And there is a fundamental paradox. How can it be illegal to help somebody to do something which is, not illegal, you know. It means yeah, yeah, serious justification, uh, and the arguments against it uh, are all hypothetical. Well, well, this might happen. This might not, you know. To which I then say, "Well, that's evidence. Let's look at the evidence from the many countries where assisted dying is legal. Is it leading to lots of abuse and exploitation of vulnerable people?" Well, the answer is no. It's not. And medicine ultimately is about evidence. It's not about expert opinion. We all know laws of evidence. You start with randomised blind controlled trials and bottom of the list is expert opinion.
0: Have you, have you thought about your own death?
1: Yes, I have, as I joke in my second book. I have a suicide kit. I have a medical <sighs> friend who says he'll help me if need be. I fully accept. I don't know until the end is close or if I end up paralysed from spinal metastases. I've Operated upon hundreds of old men with prostate cancer and the spine, but I'd like to feel I had the choice. And is also one of a strong strong arguments. I didn't actually mention in my third book for assisted dying is that it reassures people when they're close to death. If the end is going to be very unpleasant, it won't be. And in Oregon, which has had assisted dying for a six-month rule now for decades. A lot of people express an interest in assisted dying when they enter hospice palliative care, but then don't actually take up mm. take it up. And I know many friends, including my own mother, not that she would have favoured assisted dying, but where they develop this or cognitive dissonance, and you have two conversations with them: one, they're going to go on living; the other, they're making their funeral arrangements. You know. Yeah. Um, so I think the availability knowing that. A very, sister dying is available is very reassuring um, because we all know that for some people despite good palliative care dying can be very unpleasant let alone the autonomy loss of autonomy and loss of dignity argument which is one most commonly cited by in opinion polls of people who have opted for it
0: but just to to caveat that because we obviously get a very mixed audience we can yeah. They give very good palliative care. And
1: I, I sure. have... No, no. It, well, I mean, assisted dying should be seen as part of palliative care. I, with terminal sedation, mm. but which isn't used that much. It used yeah. to be used a lot more, and in a sense wrongly, because it wasn't done in discussion with the patient or family. I'm told now if terminal sedation is used, it is discussed with the patient and family. In which case, logically, why can't the patient say, I'd rather have it done quickly? Oh, Rather than spread out over a number of days, yeah. I mean,
0: as always, calling a spade a spade. Um, if you, if you read any of your book reviews, I think the the word that comes up most is irascible. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, you talk a lot, I mean, you talk very rationally about you say it how it is, but you also talk a lot about the crazy tick box culture of the NHS. Um, and it's something. I admire hugely. I, I sometimes think if the public knew about some of the ludicrous... Yes, situations. it's like, like
1: this mandatory and statutory training, where as a consultant brain surgeon, as having to answer questions and having to put feces into what type of container. I mean, this is it's absurd. It's a one-size-fits-all, which is so extremely irritating. No, I, I, irascible, I'd say critical. Have really, No, and I've only very occasionally lost my temper at work. and I always bitterly regretted it. I was giving a lecture on leadership for surgeons recently. And I said, the one thing I regret is that I did lose my temper. It's always a mistake. Um, so the idea of me is a grumpy, irascible, old sort of Lancelot sprat. Actually, I do not think it's true. I so
0: in words, I interpreted it, and maybe I don't understand the word, but I interpreted it as speak up for what you believe in. No, irascible means
1: getting angry. irascible means irritable. Okay, well, my
0: interpretation Um, of it, I clearly don't understand English very well. I I interpreted (laughs) it as someone who...
1: Rascal means easily angered, easily angered. Um, Okay, fine. No, I I, I try to be open and direct, open and critical, yes. But then, because I'm very critical of myself as well, I feel it's, it's okay, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, but some, it's like the NHS does have it. it has, so I, I, last night I had a patient who needed admitting from clinic. Yes. The clinic was in a building that wasn't connected to the main corridor. Yeah. So I was told I had to ring for an ambulance to transport this patient across the road. That's ridiculous. I,
1: I, I mean, when I was when I occasionally with, with emergencies at night, which normally be handled by the the juniors, but occasionally I'd come in, and if the porters were taking a long time to come, I said, "Come on, we'll do it ourselves." You know, yeah. you push the trolley yourself, do it yourself. You know, yeah. Um, so, um, but it's it's more difficult because the NHS has become the. Twenty years ago, there was a fairly simple command structure with with the consultant surgeon at the top, which wasn't a good thing by any means at all. I'm not defending it, but now there's a whole series of Pyramids Um, And given the lack of beds and staff, my poor colleagues in my own hospital, now, you know, you start the morning negotiating for hours before you can start operating. You have to ask the the intensivists, the ICU nurses, the HDU staff to try to, you know, am I allowed to start the operating list? Whereas in the past, many years, I just do it. And they say, you find the bed, get on with it. And and, and it was actually efficient. (laughs) There's but there, it, meant, it, meant, it meant, it meant you know, more, yeah.
0: I mean, I I hate hate the red tape. Um, two more questions. Firstly, tell me about your neurosurgical garden because... Yeah, I mean, that's and actually you what know, I'm in many ways and
1: proudest of by, by mistake, really. We, well, the old hospital, a wonderful standalone hospital Atkinson Mall is surrounded by gardens and trees. It was lovely and built as a convalescent hospital, in fact, in the 19th century. Um was closed in 2003, and we were moved to a standard one of his rip-off PFI, rip-off PFI buildings, because so many hospital trusts are now, you know, crippled by rep- PFI repayments. Um and it was going to be the building was going to be bigger originally, and then you had to chop bits off to I think, save money, so I believe. So we actually ended up with very large balconies. A building is shaped, you know, like a stepped in steps. And right from the start, when it was still in the building stage, I said, I went to the people and said, look, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity to have a garden so patients can get outside. They all know, we'll deal with all that later. So um, there are all these great big balconies outside the wards, which nobody was allowed on, because, of course, from a management point of view, the first thing a patient thinks of when they see a balcony (laughs) is to jump off and kill themselves. Actually, having said that, on a neurosurgical ward with some confused patients, you, you you can't actually have patients going on the balconies without some provision. The poor old nurses would be they'd be getting mad of anxiety. So it took me seven years of sort of emails and meetings, both with the private company who owned the building, who really had no interest in it, um, and the NHS management. I was providing the money charitably. It wasn't going to cost them a sou, I think. And eventually, we suicide-proofed one area of balconies outside the two neurosurgical wards. And, and then I again had charitable money with a friend one of my colleagues got, and we made it into a garden. Uh, and, and now, in fact, my, the, the family of a patient of one of my success, by the guy who took my job, he's one of my trainees, and a very nice doctor and a good surgeon, is now run by one of the families who raised loads of money. And it means the patients can get out of their beds and go straight into the outside world, I mean, you know, with lots of greenery and lots of pots and big trees. It's absolutely super. Uh, and it's immensely popular. And in summer, and as you during the pandemic, all the staff were there taking mm-hmm. a break from their long shifts wearing PPE. Um, and although I can't prove it saved lives or reduced hospitalization times, but it really... It's, it's been wonderfully transgressive and getting away from the, the hospitals as a sort of clinical prison. You know, Hospitals are environmentally terrible. All, all our patients are chronically sleep-deprived um, and, and we're visually deprived. Lots of hospitals have healing gardens, but they're usually miles away from the wards. Mm-hmm. And the patients don't want to wander down the corridors in their 90s and pajamas dragging urine bags and drip stands.
0: Or they're not uh, allowed to pu- sorry. Or they're not allowed
1: to. Or they're, they're not allowed, allowed to. to. And I mean the purely by chance we had this balcony. And the trouble is all these new PFI hospitals, if you're gonna if you're gonna have these environmental enhancements, you have to plan them in from the start. And although I was doing lectures about this 20 years ago for NHS Estates, all you get with all these new PFI hospitals is a glossy reception desk and lobby. And once you penetrate through that, you're back in the old prison wards of the last 50 years.
0: I, like you say, sometimes you don't need a study to know that something is a good thing. And I, um, it's just
1: common sense.
0: <laughs> and I saw they've just built one in Bart's. I think it's Bart's. Uh, mm-hmm. Another neurosurgical garden. Is that right? Did you? I see don't that? know. Well, I'm delighted <laughs> they have. On. And
1: hopefully, hopefully the patients have direct access to it because that's, that's the really important bit.
0: We've had our... it was
1: a very good place. There was no when the when the wards were built, there were two little broom cupboards, which were for sort of interviewing patients. That was absurd, but actually the balcony of the garden was a very good place for for talking to patients on their own. It was big enough; you could sit in the corner. We've and, got
0: and... um, yeah, we've got a lovely one in Nottingham that was closed for a long time, but it's now open. And I've had a lot of my my tough. You know the
1: Queen's Medicals because oh, no, no. yeah, yeah. the queen's right. medical center is this ghastly sort of vast <laughs> vast block yeah. i haven't seen, I, when i was last there i couldn't see a garden for miles
0: yeah. no they they do have a couple i think but i've i've had a lot of very difficult conversations with families out on the reef terrace exactly it's far nicer yeah. exactly. um okay final final question it's two questions um i've taken up a lot of your time Sorry. what's a good doctor what would you have said 15 years ago and what would you say now They might be the same. They might not be.
1: It's all about treating patients as you'd wish to be treated yourself, and talking, talking well. I think the technical side is the easy bit on the whole. You know, people say brain surgery easy, and I say, well, yes, it is. Actually, once you learn how to do it, the actual operating doesn't require you know tremendous. No, it's really the, the difficult bit. The good, being a good doctor. Is is all about getting on with people, and that's getting on with colleagues at all levels in the hospital, or the general practice, as well as getting on with patients. So those, those looking back in my career, I think that's the bits I got got wrong sometimes. Do you
0: that's think it's? You, bit. Do you think that answers changed at all with time or not?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, fifteen years ago, I was already. You know 55 certainly changed a lot from 30 years ago okay. when I was young and pushy and ambitious um I don't think it's changed that much and I you know, ultimately you have to ask my patients what I was like you know I I don't know um but I've always assumed that my early experience of my son's brain tumor sort of made a big difference to me um but I don't know what sort of doctor I would have been if I hadn't had that experience, you know. Yeah. But, but mm-hmm. I, I think it probably made me a bit better. But as you say, one shouldn't dwell too much. I, I mean, my, I've become famous for writing about my mistakes and Christians and things like that. But I still look back and think, I've had. You know, it's, to be a doctor is such a privilege, you know. it's Because I love people. I find people so interesting. Uh, and the challenge to befriend patients and to try to get on to people from all these different walks of life is is extraordinary And uh, it's compared to any other job i can think of
0: oh i agree Uh, that's a great note to end on and i think you know as doctors we see we see love at its strongest we see we see people deal with adversity in ways that they could never imagine they'd be able to and i think the thing i take away is the tenacity of humans that we yep. perhaps don't know we have until until we have to I, explore I
1: agree. it. Agree.
0: Thank you so much. It's um, my I, pleasure. Wow, what an indulgent conversation! What an utter utter privilege. Thank you so much, Henry. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating or a review on whichever platform you listened? These really do make a difference, and we massively appreciate it. We absolutely love hearing from you, so please do get in touch with us with comments, feedback, and suggestions for future guests. All our social media details are in the uh, information with this podcast. And if you're a new listener and want to find out more about the work we do, go and check out our websites, movecharity.org and 5kyourway.org. In the meantime, have a great fortnight, and we will be back very soon.